Well, in just a couple minutes, as Judy was praying about Deuteronomy 6, we're going to be landing in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. So if you want to, uh, to find your Bibles and, and find that passage, I want to begin by uh, speaking about the design of God. That when we think of God and we see His handiwork as the creator of the universe, that we can be reminded that He is a, a God who is a master designer. Nothing that he, has, that he has placed on this earth was just by happen chance. It wasn't just a, a random idea. He had a design, a, an intent, a function for all of the things that, that, he has, uh, that he has put here. And I was particularly thinking about this time of the year. I don't know, does anyone else think that the fall season is the, is the greatest season? I, just, I love the, the, the changing of the season, the cooler temperatures. I love seeing the, the changing of, uh, of the colors for fall. In fact, I, I, I brought in just as a uh, little example of that, a, a beautiful branch that has green leaves, it has red leaves, yellow leaves, it has some that are all the colors and just the, the beauty of God's, of God's work. And I, I did have one guy after the early service ask me if I was as excited about these leaves when I had to rake them up in a month. And so I really hadn't thought that far down the, the calendar yet, but I was just enjoying the moment, right, until, until he had to catch me in the cafe. But uh, anyway, um, I was thinking about trees. What, you know, why did God create, why did he design a tree for? Any ideas? What, what, what are the purpose of trees? Is there anything at all? Yeah, it cools us off, right? I even read something about uh, houses surrounding with the shade of trees save significantly on their energy bills, right? And you, you think about the provision for animals. And not this tree, but some trees produce fruit that can be eaten, right? You think about provision. You think about, about uh, what we are breathing right now and the contribution, not of this branch, but of other trees that are producing oxygen. You see, God had a design, a plan. Some of us live in homes that are built out of wood and we have furniture and we have all these things that God has provided through trees. Your soil kept in place because of the root systems. And you think of the stability of the earth in various places and all that God's done. And what's my point? He has made a design so that something can function properly. And if we understand how it's designed and what the needs are, we can take care of His, of his creation. We can take care of the trees that He's given to us. We can appreciate their beauty and, and their function. That's what God has done when, when He is designed and He is created. Now, this morning, I, I don't want to give a, a message on trees, as fun as that might be, right? But there's another thing that I'd like for us to think about. Before God created the institution of a nation, before God created the institution of a church, do you know what was His first creation in terms of an institution? It was the family. You can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And you see that God created family. And he, he has a design. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And when that design is functioning, and when we are, when we are attentive to it, we then see the blessing of, of, the, of the function of the family and what it is to produce, not only for us as a family unit, but as we will see, it is something that blesses a, a church and blesses a community and even blesses a nation. In fact, I was reminded of the words of Dennis Rainey, Family Life Today. He said, no church, community, or nation will rise higher than the spiritual condition of its families. 
The family is God's smallest unit in the battle for the soul of any nation. It's the place where the knowledge, fear, and love of the Lord are taught by parents and learned by children. The family is where character is planted and grown. If the soul of America is to be restored, it will be done one home, one family at a time. And in the church, we assist that by proclaiming God's truth for the family. You see, God has created the family. And He wants to see a family flourish. He wants to see life happening within a marriage. He wants to see life happening within the relationships of of parents with their kids and with grandparents with their kids and aunts and uncles and all that, that He's provided is part of His design, part of His purpose. And so as we look at Deuteronomy 6 today, I want us to to ask a question about the design of the family. And it's not the question of whether or not our nation or our culture understands the design of the family. We could could take that question and we could go through it and we could have that dialogue. But for today, I want us to think, how do we see personally the design of the family? How do we give attention to it so that it can practically have its function within our homes And when that happens from family to family, we will see the the impact within our church family as a whole. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Many believe that this chapter is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. Maybe the most important one. It is a chapter in which God is speaking through Moses to the people of Israel right before they would enter the promised land. So they're, they're about to enter the, the place that they've been longing for for generations. They're just about to go in, and there's a, there's a message they need to hear. What's that message? It's the message of Deuteronomy 6. These are the words that the Lord wanted on their minds as they are making this transition. These are the truths that He didn't want them to leave behind. And so many say that, that this indeed is an important passage. And you know what the, the topic is all about? There's some truths here about who God is, but it's all about how they're communicated from one generation to the next. Think about that. Of all the words that could be given to the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land, God wanted to remind them of the function of a family and reminding the next generation of the truth of who God is and how we're to respond to Him. So with that in mind, let's listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9, a passage that is oftentimes referred to as the Shema. And that's the Hebrew word for the very first word in verse 4. And it's sometimes translated hear or listen. But it's also in other verses in which this word Shema is used, it, it can also be translated obey because In the Hebrew understanding at this time, to hear is to obey. And to say that one has heard without obeying is really to say that they have not heard at all. Does that ring a bell to any parents who've had a conversation with a little one before saying, have you really listened to me? Because from what I'm seeing here, I don't know that you heard me, right? So the the idea of hear, hearing, listening is a really strong word that's closely linked with obedience. Listen, Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. This is the word of the Lord for us today. As we think through Ephesians 6, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, I want to uh, also make a cross-reference over to the book of Ephesians. Because as we think about this, there are words here for us as families. I hope that moms and dads and grandparents are, 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 are gathering information here that will be encouraging and helpful. But it's a message for us as a household of faith. And for some who are here, you may be saying, well, I'm, I'm single. I'm not in, in this type of family that you're describing. And, and I want to say this is a message for everyone. How valuable are the single adults within our faith community? How much of an impact and an influence do they make within the lives of our young people? To be that other voice that comes alongside, that other word, that other part of expressing love and commitment and, and, and words of encouragement. And so, so I want us to look at it in light of Ephesians chapter 2.19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So together, let us look at Deuteronomy 6. Let us look how we can listen to and obey the Shema, the ancient teaching from Deuteronomy 6 that is here for us today. I begin by pointing out verse 4 to you. Verse 4 is a foundational verse. It's giving bedrock truth about the existence of God. In fact, there's one phrase here, one small verse, and it, it, it's, it's, it's here. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's four truths coming right out of that. The first one is there is a God. There is a God. And there is, there's, there's no denying that God exists. You can read Romans 1. We see the, the evidence of God throughout His creation. We see the evidence of design and function. All of that is true. And yet, if we're not careful, we can take the thinking of the world, which is very humanistic, not centered upon a Creator God. And so it's important, a foundational truth, and I know some of you are probably thinking, man, this is really, really basic. We're all sitting in church here, right? We, we believe there is a God. There is a God, and that is to begin shaping the way that we view things, the way we respond to life. We're going to talk at this in, in more depth in a moment, but we don't want to miss the point that there is a God. That's where it begins. Number two, there is only one God. It says the Lord is one. And so that's a word to us. That's a word to those who hear of other religions. There are some who believe, like the Hindus, that there are an untold number of gods. Well, it's important for the next generation to hear not only that there is a God, but that there's one God. That way they're not drawn away into to the thinking of other religions. And not just Hinduism, we could talk about Mormonism as well. Mormonism believes in many, many gods. In fact, they believe that they can become individually a God someday. And so, again, this is bedrock truth. Is there anything more important than knowing who God is? 
Well, there is a God, the, 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 the only one God. And number three, that God is Lord, the Lord our God. Now, the word Lord may not be a, a common word used in our, in our culture today, but what, is, what does it mean when we say someone's the Lord? We mean that someone is in charge, right? A Lord is one who, who is meant to be obeyed. A Lord is one who's meant to be listened to. And so here we're hearing that, that God is in charge. He is the Lord. He is, in fact, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. This is the Lord God. But there's a fourth truth. If you look at the last one there, it says this. That God is to be our Lord. The Lord, our God. See how personal it gets? So that's when it, it comes into play in my life and in yours is, is this God my Lord? What about for our family, for our church? Is He the one that is personally, personally our Lord? So these truths are proclaimed in this passage. And as we move from verse 4 after to, through verse 9, what we're reading about is a response to this very truth about God. Now, we could spend a lot of time on what's called theology proper, right? We could, we could explore what other verses are used to describe the, the nature of God and the existence of God or the attributes of God. All of that is so important. And that's just a little example of what's happening here in verse 4, that, that the nature of God is being, is being expressed and that that is the foundation from which everything else responds. Now, this truth even comes into sharper focus with the coming of Jesus Christ. So we have the, the advantage of, of living on the other side of the cross where we're able to even have a sharper focus on the nature and existence of God as evidenced in the life of Jesus Christ. So that's, again, something that is important for us. Well, as we move through the next verses, I don't want to give them to you in the form of three points. I want to give them to you in the form of three circles. Three concentric circles. And the first circle, if you're going to try to draw this out, is what I'm calling authentic love. Authentic love. And it comes from verses 5 and 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. So it begins with a call to love. A call for commitment. This isn't uh, this isn't beginning with, with just the idea of, 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 of educating. It's not the idea of just dispensing rules. This is the idea of starting with relationship. That's what love is all about. And, and, and we looked at this last week, and so I won't repeat that, but love is more than a feeling. Love is a commitment even when we don't feel like loving. Because our emotions, they can ebb and flow, they can come and go, we get that. But a, 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 a true love, as defined in Scripture, is a sacrificial commitment, unconditional, unconditional love. This is the love that's being called to. It's a commitment to love God with all of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is something that didn't just begin and end in Deuteronomy. We can fast forward to the life of Jesus, and, and he was asked, well, what is the greatest commandment? And you know what? He said something pretty similar to Deuteronomy 6 in Matthew chapter 22. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And folks, until we have understood this, there's no reason to go on to anything else. 
It all resonates from this principle of loving God, loving Him, being committed to Him, understanding who He is in Christ, what He has done, and how we respond to His love by loving Him. It's authentic love. It's a priority. It's a love that is fervent with all your heart, all your being. I read about a boy that was growing up in Germany about 150 years ago. He and his family attended the synagogue every Saturday. He grew up and, and uh, was, was, uh, uh, was, was used to, to that, that uh, style of worship, that location. The family up and moved to another town in Germany. And the dad said, we're not going to the synagogue in this town. We're going to the Lutheran church. So they went to the Lutheran church on a Sunday. And the, the young boy is, is puzzled by, by the change. Why, dad, why are we not going over to the synagogue? Why are we going to the Lutheran church? And you know what his dad told him? He said, because I can make better business contacts here at the Lutheran church than I can over at the synagogue. And so his boy looked up at him and he said, look, it's, it's the best thing for me and my business. And ultimately, it's the best thing for our family. It'll be the best thing for you because I'll do better in business if we go here. Now, what do you think that little boy was thinking? What do you think that message was being communicated to the little boy about the purpose of worship or the motivation for going to church? Let me just ask you, moms and dads and grandparents, do kids see through that kind of stuff? You bet they do. And so did he. Because he grew up and he went on to, to write. He moved to England. You know his name? His name is Karl Marx. You know what he wrote? He said, religion is the opiate of the people. I wonder why. I wonder where he got that idea. You see, we're called to love the Lord with fervency. Not with wrong motives, not with hypocrisy, but with authenticity. That's why that circle says authentic love. A genuine love. Now, does that mean that we are perfect? Does it mean that, that, that we have it all together and that, that our love for God and our love within the family is perfection? I didn't, I didn't write that in the circle, right? Because none of us are perfect. In fact, I told the early service, just come on over and spend a little time with my family. Just spend some time with us for a week. In fact, I said, no, it wouldn't take a week. <laughs> it wouldn't even take a day. Just, just come have a meal with us, all right? And, and we'll be able to see the Bowman family is not a perfect family. We have our, our, our struggles. We have our issues. We have our ups and our downs. But I hope, and I, and I say this with humility and sincerity, I hope that you find that there's a love for God there. That even as we work through struggles and, and, and trials, or even when the victories, when they do come, that, that it would be a love for God? That's what I want my kids to see. That's what I want them to have, some, some authenticity. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is speaking of, is an authentic love. There's a call there for us to hear. And what does hear mean? Obey. We are to respond by loving with all of our hearts. This isn't heartless. This isn't going through the motions. This is a true commitment. Look at the next verse, verse 7. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Now the word there is talk. And in the second circle I thought about putting the word teach in there because that's in essence what's happening. There's teaching happening. But I didn't use the word teach or even talk. I'm, I'm using the phrase gospel conversations. 
Gospel conversations. You'll see it kind of in that yellow band. Because this idea of talking wasn't the, the formal declaration of teaching. There, there was a Hebrew word that could have been used. And, and, and I will agree that there are times where that kind of teaching needs to happen in the home. And I'm grateful that the church is even able to supplement with some material to help work, walk through some basic discipleship lessons. But if we think that that's all that this is speaking of, we're missing the context of the passage. Because the passage is saying when we get up and when we go about the day, when we're sitting in our home or when we're walking along the road. Now, let's be honest. How many of us are walking along the road? Not many of us. But how many of us are filling up the SUV with the family and driving along the road? Are we doing that? Yeah, probably so. So what is, what is the, the, the dialogue? What is the conversation? It's the idea of, of seeing the world around us, the events that our family members are going through, the decisions that we're, that we're making, the struggles, the sicknesses, the challenges, the victories, the blessings. All of these are to be, are to be life events that we have gospel conversations about. What do I mean by that? There's conversations that can be influenced by gospel truth. Each and every conversation can be. Okay, now I realize it may not be practical to, you know, every single time we're talking to try to do this, but on the, on the important ones, on the big ones, on the ones that, that are happening on a, on a daily basis where we can pepper in, season in a little bit of gospel thinking, to help shape how we view the world around us. Now, for many of us, we might say, you know, I really, I really want my child to grow up with a good work ethic. Have you ever used that phrase? I want you to work hard. Right now, your job is a student, and I want you to, I want you to do your very best on, on this test or on this paper or, or on this assignment. Anybody else? Maybe I'm the only one. Okay, all right. I, I've said things like that before. Now, how we take that conversation can be a gospel conversation, or it could be a humanistic conversation. I could talk just like any other secularist and say, look, I want you to do well. I want you to, I want you to get a good education. I want you to get a good job. I don't want you to be homeless someday. Right? I mean, well, all these things we could say, maybe you've said things like that, that could be purely humanistic, and any other secular-minded person could say it. Or we could look at a good work ethic in light of a passage of Scripture. How about a gospel promise, like the one found in Colossians 3, verse 17, and whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do you realize that every word and every deed has an opportunity to glorify God? And so what if that, that pep talk to, to the student is, you're a follower of Christ. Can you glorify God in the way you do this project? Can you glorify God in the way that you prepare for that test? And it's not saying that everything's perfect. Don't, don't ever hear me say that. But with that perspective that, Lord, this is who I am, and whatever it is I do, I want to do for you. And, and, and that, that, that is a different message than the other one. And it's a, it's a way of, of trying to say this is, this is who we are, the character of Christ living within us. And it goes beyond school. And in some days it goes to the office or to the workplace. Right, mom and dad? To be reminded, hey, I'm, I'm walking into this office and whatever I do in word or deed, I need to glorify God. 
And so that's an example. And maybe I, I have to remind gospel truth to myself, okay? And you're thinking, man, you're in pastoral ministry, right? It ought to be obvious to me. Well, it, it ought to be. It ought to be. But we have to remind ourselves why it is we do what we do. What it, why is it you do what you do when you start your job for the day? Is it to glorify God? What does it look like for, for someone who's playing soccer this fall? Is there a way to glorify God on the soccer field? Is there a way that the character of Christ speaks into to sportsmanship and the way to handle defeat or even how to handle victory, how to prepare? Because, yeah, we could, we could have a humanistic, secular pep talk about it, or we could have an opportunity for gospel promises to come in and to, to, to season the way that we're thinking. That's, so that's what I mean about gospel conversations. Let me give you a book recommendation. An author by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt, and I believe this book is still available at the library if you just want to check it out or listen to it on audio, Gospel Fluency. Here's what he says. God wants his people to be able to translate the world around them and the world inside of them through the lens of the gospel. The truths of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Gospel fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So break that, that quote down for a minute and think. He's saying, look at the world around you and look at what's happening inside you and bring the gospel to bear. Let it help you as you look around and as you look within. Now, let me give you an example. There's a lot of ways we could describe the gospel. One of my favorite ones is the word restore. To see the meta-narrative of Scripture, to see that there was a, a creation, there was fall into sin, there was a, a promised rescuer in Jesus Christ, and that someday there'll be complete restoration with the new heaven and new earth. We're not there yet. That's our promised land. So we see this sweeping narrative, this grand theme of restoration. And then we ask ourselves, okay, does the, does the gospel principle of restoration speak a word of truth into what I'm going through? What if what I'm dealing with is substance abuse? Does the message of restoration, the gospel of restoration, does it speak into substance abuse? Can it? Of course it can. What about broken marriages? Marital strife. Does the restoration of the gospel speak in to this type of strife? Well, what is restoration? It's healing. Restoration is broken pieces being put back together. Some of you all have restoration testimonies about substance abuse or about a restored marriage. What about other situations? What about, about uh, uh, relationships that are, that are, that are, that are, that are broken? strife among a family or among friendships. Does the gospel of restoration speak into any of this? Of course it does. It's a testimony of, of God at work restoring and rebuilding. This is the new life. This is the hope that the gospel brings in to each of us. Now, I've only used the word restoration. How else could we describe the gospel? We could say the gospel is a gospel of grace. Well, does grace speak into the, to the life that we see around us? We could, we could use the word compassion. That's an attribute of the gospel. Where does compassion come in when we see the world around us? 
When you think about the neighbors on your street, where does compassion come in? What about conversations within the the church family? Could we use the word humility to describe the, the gospel? Would that be a fair word? Yeah. So humility, how does it how does it resonate within the life of this church? Service. See, all these are words that describe the gospel, and each of them are themes that when we are fluent, when we have gospel fluency, we're able to look at the world around us and we're looking at it through the lens of the gospel. Gospel conversations. Now, that's the outer ring. We can't just start there because a part of what that conversation is based on, the foundation of it, is love for God, right? Love for God. There's one other thing I forgot to mention. Another way to describe the gospel is the second commandment. Not only to love the Lord your God, but what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. So see, all of these gospel principles, they, they give us guidance as we walk through daily life. How is God working in your life? How is He, how is he providing? Where are you following? All of these things speak of the principles of God. Look again at verse 8. I'm not going to spend much time here. But verse 8 speaks of binding these principles as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. In uh, the 4th century B.C., rabbis of the Jewish faith began to take this verse very literally. And they wrote the Shema uh, on pieces of paper. And they put them in little boxes that they would tie onto their arms and onto their foreheads. And they literally would go to a time of prayer with, the, with these verses on their body, right? In these little boxes. Now, I've, I read Deuteronomy 6 in a figurative way. They were taking it very literally. And by the days of Jesus, it wasn't just the idea of having the, the phylacteries on during the time of worship, but it was how many do you have on and how big are they? And, and, and Jesus actually had words of warning to those who were putting all of their hope in this ritual. And he said, this, this has become pretense. This isn't, this isn't true worship. And so it's about being able to look around and see whatever we put our mind to, whatever we put our hand to, to do so under the authority of God's Word and for the love that we have for Jesus Christ. This is what we're speaking of here. Now let's go to the ninth verse. Write them on your doorposts of your home and on your city gates. Now again, we might look at this and say, well, is this... Is this something that we're to to inscribe on the doorframe? Is this something that we're supposed to put there? Is this literal or figurative? Now, uh, I want us to think about the third circle on verse 9. Because I think what it's talking about is taking what's on the inside of the home and taking it out. I think the the, the idea of a doorpost is, is, is outward facing. It's external. It's sending a message to the community. Particularly this part about the city gates, right? Now this message has gone out. Now... Do we start, let's look at the third circle here, it encompasses them, because we, we start with the love of God, then we, we see the, the gospel conversations, and then what happens? As our families are renewed, and as God's gospel is at work, people begin to see a difference. They begin to notice that there is renewal in your family. They begin to see humility and compassion. They see true love and sacrifice, unconditional love. And it becomes like a light. It becomes like a house sitting on a hill with a bright light because it's influencing the community. Now, we don't start on the outer circle. 
That, that would be inconsistent, right? Because what, what, what message would we have to say if it doesn't first begin the cascading effect from deep within us? There are some who have taken this very literally. And uh, there is something that the Jewish faith has had call, called the mezuzah. And I've got one here. This is something that can be affixed to the doorframe. And some uh, people have this and they, they use it as a reminder as they leave the house or as people are coming in, what they stand for. This particular one has some Christian symbols. It has not only a Hebrew character and the menorah and the Star of David, but it also has an ichthus on there, speaking of the Messiah Jesus, right? Not all of them do, but the, the, the one for Messianic Jews does. And Judy West let me borrow this one. And it's really a container because as you open it up carefully, it contains a little piece of paper that you unfold. And you've got Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 in here. Thankfully, it's in English, not just in Hebrew. But uh, it's the words that we just read. And they, they keep this here as a reminder. And so, yes, some people have taken this very literally. And, and I, I can remember even on some sports teams that I played on as a kid, is, is, uh, we'd leave the locker room. Do you ever have a coach put something over the, the top about, you know, defense winning or, or some motivational statement that we'd slap on our way out to the court or out to the field? Well, think of it kind of like that. This, the Word of God put up there as a reminder, visible reminder on the way out, on the way in. Anybody else that enters? It's meant to say, we, we, have, we have driven our flag into the ground, and by God's grace, we are going to love the Lord with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our minds. That He is King here. You've not entered into a perfect family. You've not entered into a perfect house, but you've entered into a house that's going to say, we love God, and we're going to do the best we can to live for Him and to love Him. That's what, that's what begins that outward community influence. Do we want that as a church family? You bet we do. Do we want that uh, as we think about a map of all the fellowship of Wildwood families scattered throughout the metro, thinking about these little points of light that are influencing streets and neighborhoods? You had little children come to your front door this last week. It was, it was cold. They probably didn't stand out there very long. But there are little boys and girls accompanied with moms and dads who hopefully they have the love of God in the midst of their family. If they don't, you may be that example for them. You may be the only example for some of them and able to be able to have this external influence. So this morning I ask you as I wrap this message up, Simply four questions. Four questions to consider based on Deuteronomy chapter 6. The first one is this. Is God the foundation of your home? Are you able to declare that the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Is that, is that foundational for you? Is that just a holiday or a Sunday morning expression? Or is that at the very core of who you are as an individual and what you desire your family to be? Secondly, are you loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is anything about, about loving Him perfectly. But I think that there is a maturing aspect. I think there is a growth aspect that the longer we walk with Him, the closer we become to Him, we are making these commitments. And they're real. They're important. That's why Christ even said it's the first and greatest commandment. Third question is this, is there anything in your family life that is preventing you from having Christ at the center? Is there anything that has supplanted Him 
or His Word for being authoritative. And the final question is this. Is there a situation going on in your family life right now that you could speak the gospel into? Is there something that one of your children or grandchildren are walking through or something as a family you're walking through that you could, you could consider a gospel conversation through that? You see, that, that's, that's the point of all of this from Deuteronomy 6 is keeping these truths not only fresh in the mind but also seeing day by day how they apply to the life that we're living. That's where, that's where transformation happens. And that's where it happens from one generation to the next. And folks, the good news is we don't do any of this in our own strength or ability. Because one of those gospel promises is that His Holy Spirit will work in us and through us. It's His blessing. It's His provision for all of this. Anything God calls us to, He will indeed prepare us for and He will empower us in. So with all that in mind, I invite you now to respond to the Lord. For some, I make the invitation to come to Christ. Maybe you have not loved the Lord as the Lord God. Maybe today is a day of salvation where you say, I realize now that it's, it's not what I do or earn, but it's coming to Christ, loving Him, knowing Him, receiving His love for you. You'll notice that on the outer walls of the auditorium, we have some tables set up, and our prayer and encouragement team will be making their way there. If you have a question about what it means to follow Christ, to know Him, they are there ready to talk with you. If you have a question about what it means to be a part of the Fellowship of Wildwood, they'll be at those tables ready to speak with you. Maybe you have a matter in your life that you're walking through and you just need someone to put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you. Well, that's what those folks are there for. So while we sing this next song, or even after the song's over, if you want to drop by and talk with one of those team members, you're welcome to do so. I'm going to invite the ushers to come and receive the offering for the morning. And as they do, let's bow together and let's pray a prayer of commitment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your truth. You've given us your word to guide so that we can understand the design that you have given to the family. And Lord, we seek to love you with all of our beings. We seek to serve you. We seek to speak your word into everyday life. And God, we long to see the next generation love you as well. God, we pray that the baton wouldn't be dropped from one generation to the next. But we pray, Lord, for your mercy. We pray for your blessing. And we pray, Father, for you to be glorified and honored in the families of our church fellowship. Father, do your work now as only you can and help us to respond as you lead. Bless these tithes and offerings as they're received and use them for your purpose and glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said,